Good morning. I want to make an announcement this morning before we get into the ele- uh, lesson. We have a lot of excitement going on at Oldham Lane with the new building, our new family center, which will increase uh, our room, which we've needed for some time. You know, we made room in our auditorium a few years back, but we didn't uh, successfully alleviate the problem of having uh, overcrowding in classrooms and our fellowship space. So that's, if you're visiting with us, that's what you're seeing going up. And next Sunday morning, myself, Jake, Blake, I think a few others are going to lead a tour through our family center, at least what's there right now. So hopefully we can get that excitement stirred up and you can see what is happening. I'm sure you can look at it and see that they've got studs up. They've even got some uh, walls going up. So hopefully you'll stick around with us. We'll meet right out here over by the family center and we'll, depending on how many people we have, break up into groups and we'll take you through and and just give you a chance to look at everything. That's Sunday morning after services, next Sunday morning, and I'll give you more instruction about that next week. also want to welcome you if you're visiting with us. We have been embarking on a series about grief. This is, and I know I'm a little biased, a wonderful church family, and I don't say that to try to sell you on anything other than the fact that that's honest, that's an honest assessment. It's a wonderful church family that we have to be a part of here. If you're visiting with us, I can say with full confidence, you are. if you're looking for a church home, this is the best place for you. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful congregation of the Lord's people. But within all of the success that we've had, our growth, and the wonderful people we have here, we have had a lot of deaths in the last year and a half to two years. You know, when I arrived here nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, I think if you looked across our congregation, you saw a congregation that was mostly made up of 50-year-olds and older. And now you look at it, it's mostly 50 and younger. Whatever caused that change, not real sure, but at the same time, when you get older as a congregation, a lot of times, unfortunately, you lose some of those folks, at least, unfortunately for us, that deal with the loss. And so we have lost a lot of our older members in the last recent uh, uh, few years. And that's, that's taken a toll on me, and I think it has on our folks here, especially those who have been left to grieve those losses. And so over the last three or four weeks, we've been talking about grief and how to handle grief. And this morning, I want us to look at, as we close out this series, what it means to be a community of bereavers. Because as community, we should be bereaving together. We should be, we should be sharing in this mourning process. And you know, It reminds me of when I was a very young and inexperienced preacher. We had a lady at the congregation where I was serving named Vera Cargyle, and Vera was a wonderful Christian woman. She had lost her husband many years prior to me getting to that congregation, and we instantly hit it off. She was uh, an elderly lady that just had so much life and uh, so much wisdom, and uh, we would sit and talk. I'd learned so much from her. She passed away, and we knew that that day was coming. She had been suffering from an illness. And so she had talked to me about doing her funeral and what uh, she would like to have said and done at her funeral. Well, she had a gentleman in the congregation that she was friendly with. They would go out and eat lunch, dinner together from time to time, Um, more friend or confidant than anything else. His name was Ray. And I can remember vividly on the day of the funeral, me being nervous. This was one of the first funerals I'd ever done, talking with the family Uh, expressing my condolences, and Ray comes up to me, and he taps me on the shoulder, and he says, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. 
And he pulls me aside, and I figure he's either going to talk to me about how he's struggling with all of this, or maybe he wants to add something to the service. Whatever it was, I was ready to listen. What he wanted to tell me was that he took issue with my sermon on Sunday and how I didn't use proper grammar in the sermon. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself as he's talking, we're about to put to rest one of the most beautiful Christian women that has ever lived. Someone that you called a dear friend. In just a matter of minutes, the funeral's about to happen, and you're critiquing the lesson from Sunday? But you had to step back a little bit from my frustration and say, you know, it is true that people handle all this stuff differently. I mean, grieving is something that everyone handles differently, and in the moment, you just really... There's really no tried or true process, is there? I'm sure Ray was having a difficult time wrestling with all of it, and that's just how it came out. And we tried to, we tried to help the griever by doing and saying things that we hope will help them to move on quicker and to get over it quicker. We talked about some of these. We say certain things, little, little phrases that we've heard, and we try to pass on because we think if we just say the exact right thing, it'll help them instantly get over whatever it is that they're going through. One of the things that we say is, I understand exactly how you feel. I don't know that we do. I mean, there may be a case where we have gone through exactly the same thing that that person has gone through. But in our most honest assessment of things, the truth is, we may have dealt with something in a grief situation, but we don't know exactly how another person feels. We can never know that. And as I've said, there really is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to the grieving process. So probably the best thing to say is just, I love you and I'm here for you. Is there anything you need? Another thing that we, we tend to say, and I say we, I use that term loosely because I'm not sure that applies to any of us. But one thing you hear a lot, or at least I've heard a lot, when it comes to grieving and helping those who grieve is, it was God's will. Really? So why would it be God's will? Why would it be God's will to take a mother who had been suffering from cancer away from her family that she was trying to raise? You know, this whole everything happens for a reason thing that goes around and you hear a lot, that may be true, but it also insinuates that God is behind everything and he's not. He may have allowed it, but that doesn't mean that God wanted it to happen. And it certainly doesn't mean that God wanted for a, a, a child to die or for a mother to die or for a husband to die. That's not what that means. So let's be careful assigning credit to God for every single thing that happens, especially death. Plus the fact that Scripture makes it clear, Jesus even makes it clear in Luke chapter 10 and verse 31, that some things just occur by chance. Here's another one. God must have needed another angel in heaven. Let's refrain from saying that because, first of all, people don't become angels when they die. And secondly... God taking a person away from their children or for their family is not how God operates. So let's leave that one alone. Why would God need that person in heaven more than their earthly family? Here's another. Now, now, don't cry. Why not? What's wrong with crying? Why can't I cry? I mean, God has instilled with us, within us certain emotions, and it's okay for us to allow those emotions to come out, especially when we're talking about a situation as severe as grief. It's okay to cry. In fact, it's perfectly natural and normal to do so. I can't imagine Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus 
with Mary and Martha weeping and him weeping as well and somebody coming over to him and saying, Jesus, don't cry. Don't cry. That's silly. Allow people to grieve. Allow them to cry if they need to. Here's one I've heard, and it sounds so rude and so insensitive, but I've heard it multiple times. At least you're young. You can have more children or you can marry again. Let's never say this. That's awful, folks. I know we're trying to say the right thing, but let's not ever, let's not ever say something like this because we're not talking about a pet. I mean, a human being is irreplaceable. And it doesn't matter if you have 10 children. You lose one, it hurts. And it always hurts. And you'll never fill that void. If you lose your spouse, it hurts. And it's going to be hard to ever fill that void. Impossible, in fact. So let's refrain from that. Or it's better this way. For who? Well, maybe for the child of God that passed away, right? Better for them. Doesn't mean it's better for us. I mean, that's why we're crying. That's why we're weeping. That's why we hurt. Because on this side of eternity, it may feel like death is winning. It's tough. It's tough to get through this. It may be better for the one who's deceased, but it's not better for us. In fact, it's traumatic, and we need to come to grips with that as someone who is helping another grieve. You know, I think all too often, a hole in our church is that we suffer from a disease that I would call EDD, Empathy Deficit Disorder. And I think a lot of churches, not just even, um, you know, churches right here in Abilene, but all over the country, all over the world, suffer from this. We just don't really know how to empathize. We just don't really know how to put ourselves in the position of the griever to help them to get over whatever it is they're going through, or even to help them get through it. Probably shouldn't even say help them get over, because some things you never get over. You're just able to deal with them more effectively. But remember, all of the times in Scripture that it talks about being a community of bereavers, Romans 12 and 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 12 and 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Remember Psalm 23, why do you think it's read so often at funerals? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Certainly it is God that is with the one who is grieving but it's community as well. It's church family, those that are there to support them. We could go on and on, but I think you get the idea that comforting those who are hurting is a work of the church. And it's a work that every one of us should be invested in. Not only do we grieve with hope, we grieve with family as well. Grieving can be made so much easier when we have Christians there for us who are on our side, who are weeping with those who weep. We're not always good at this. As I said, many churches suffer from this empathy deficit disorder. And you wonder why that is. Why do we struggle with this? Well, for one reason, it's awkward. It just is, isn't it? I mean, we get a little uncomfortable when somebody starts breaking down and, and crying over the loss of a loved one. We don't really know how to handle that. And so our knee-jerk reaction is to try to get them to stop, right? They're there. It's okay. You got to pick yourself up. You got to keep going on. You can't, you can't be breaking down like this all the time. It's just awkward for us. Because many people don't really know what it's like to lose someone close to them. Which is another thing, a lack of experience. You know, surveys say that 
that those who try to comfort others, only about 15 to 20 percent of them have ever really lost someone close to them. So we're largely unaffected, really, as a community of bereavers. You know, we really don't know how to help those who are hurting because we've never been through it ourselves. And so we don't really know what to say or what to do, and so we end up saying the wrong thing sometimes because we're trying to say something right, we're trying to do something right, but it gets awkward and we're afraid. We're afraid we're going to say something wrong. If you're like me, I've said some of those things that I mentioned a moment ago. We're not trying to hurt anybody. We just, in our efforts to help, we sometimes end up hurting. You know, author Joseph Bailey tells a story about losing three children. He has seven kids. He's lost three. And after the death of one of his sons, church members came to his house. They tried to give him some biblical advice. Uh, they said they'd pray for him and all this kind of stuff. But Joseph Bailey says the best thing that helped was having friends who came and just sat with me in silence. They just put their arm around me, allowed me to cry, allowed me to let those emotions out, who just gave me a hug and allowed me to be there and to go through the grieving process. Sometimes the best thing to say is absolutely nothing. Sometimes our silence is golden, especially when you talk about the grieving process and helping those who grieve. There's also the issue of unrealistic expectations. As I've already said, we tend to think that grieving or mourning is something that should be over with pretty quickly. You lose someone, you have the funeral, you get over it, and you move on. That's not how this works. In fact, a man on the street survey has suggested that when they ask people, how long do you think a person should grieve, they got answers anywhere from 48 hours to two weeks to six months. We don't know. We don't really know how long someone should grieve. And we should have realistic expectations. We should go into this knowing that everyone's different. Some of you sitting here this morning have been grieving for years. You may not break down every time you hear the person's name anymore, but you still grieve. It still hurts. You still haven't completely gotten past it. And we shouldn't have these unrealistic expectations that once the funeral is over and you leave the cemetery, that now you get on with your life as normal. Why do grieving families have a funeral? You know, you can talk to any funeral home director and they will tell you that funerals or memorial services provide closure for the family. And so often, the family gets together and they, they find that closure, but when they leave the cemetery, when they leave the funeral home, they find that the grieving process hasn't stopped. In fact, reality has hit them even harder. I can tell you folks, when visiting with a family who has just lost a loved one, I am keenly aware, because I've been through it enough times, that they haven't truly started grieving yet. Most times. Not always, but most times. Their, their loved one has passed away. And now they have to make a thousand different decisions and write a thousand different checks. So they've got to get all these things organized. They haven't had time to stop and really reflect on what has happened to them. Yes, they feel the sting of loss. Yes, it hurts them. Yes, they mourn and they grieve. But it's not until the day of the funeral you can see it. It all hits them. The reality sets in. When they see their loved one lying in that casket, they see it closed. The reality hits them square in the face that they aren't coming back. While the funeral provides closure, it also 
kind of signifies a new chapter in the person who is grieving in their life. Now they have to adjust to a new normal. Now they have to begin life without that person in their life. And that's where we need to be there to step in in the weeks, months, maybe even years following to say, what can we do for you? Is there anything that you need? Because there are anniversaries. There's that first Christmas without them. That, that birthday, the day of their death that you remember. And it stirs all those emotions again. You know, I've never really been able to empathize with another person who is grieving until recently. As you know, I lost my mother three years ago. And in some ways, that has been a blessing in the fact that it has allowed me to be in another person's shoes and to see things with their eyes in which I'd never seen before. I felt like I could empathize pretty well. I have been through this many, many times. I cannot tell you how many funerals I have been a part of, hundreds. And so you feel like after a while, it's clockwork. You can, you know, you know what to do. You know how to handle this. But until you've sat on the other side of the desk, so to speak, you really don't know. And even now, I don't know exactly what every person feels, but I can tell you, as an only child whose parents were divorced, having to go and plan everything to do with the service, to make all of the arrangements, to handle all of the financial business, all of those things, to do all of that by yourself and to realize, wow, this is what people deal with. I mean, it's, it gives you a whole new insight. And I think that the Scripture gives us some great insight as well to help us to empathize with someone who is in that position. Let's look at John chapter 11 if you have your Bibles. This, of course, is the account of Jesus going to raise his friend Lazarus. And I think that the way that Jesus handles this whole situation tells us something really profound about how we can help those who are grieving. And maybe how the grieving can handle the situation. In John chapter 11, in verse 35, we read, Jesus wept. I want you to think about how profound that statement is. Because we read over it, or like we said a couple of weeks ago, we always see it as the answer to a Bible trivia question. But there's so much more to that phrase. Jesus wept. Jesus, in his humanity, saw weeping people. And it caused him to shed tears as well. Now remember, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So I don't think that's necessarily what he's weeping about. I think he's weeping because he looked in that tomb. He saw a man who had been dead for multiple days. You can imagine what that looked like, what that smelled like. I think D Jesus is confronted with the reality of what sin has done to the world, namely bringing death into it. But then also he sees people that he is close to grieving and hurting. And it hurts him. It touches his heart. Jesus wept. You also notice in verse 33, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Jesus felt the need to be human in the loss of his friend Lazarus. And so the first thing that we learn from Jesus about assisting others is to be real. Just be real. It's okay to cry with those who are crying. A lot of times we step in and we think, well, I've got to be the stronger person here. I've got to be the one that holds the tears in, the one who is able to be the rock for that person. I mean, as a preacher, I always thought that. Until recently, I always thought it's my job to be above the fray, right? I've got to be the one kind of above all of this grieving so that I can be the rock. 
Folks, people don't need you to be a rock. They need you to be a pillow. They need you to be someone that they can lay their head on, that they can cry with. And it's okay that we join them in their grieving. Jesus did. He was real. He was genuine. It hurt him to see his friends hurting. And if it hurts us, that's okay too. Because it shows that we have a touchable heart and that we too share in their grief, their empathy. Notice verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Skip down to verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds by saying, hey, don't get on to me. You shouldn't be crying. You know who I am. No, that's not what he says, is it? You know what he says? He doesn't hardly say anything. Because I think Jesus knew that no matter what he said in that moment, it really wasn't going to have the full effect until he did something, right? And so we learned something else. We learned how to be quiet. Be real and be quiet. Your words don't fix anything. They may can provide some comfort, but they don't fix anything. And so sometimes the best thing to say is nothing. Sometimes the best thing to do is just be there. Sit with them. Hold them. Let them ball on your shoulder. Verse 31 shows us another vital principle. It reads, Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. You notice that, that the Jews followed her? They wanted to weep with her. They wanted to be there to console her. They came to show support. Now keep in mind that sobbing during this time was not just kind of crying and, uh, and weeping a little bit. You see, the commonly held view at this time was that the more unrestrained the weeping was, the more honor it paid to the dead. So if you're outside the village, you can hear these cries, these wails, as you're getting closer and closer to the village. These people had gathered together to weep with Mary and Martha. And they were wailing bitterly. The loss of Lazarus maybe didn't mean as much to the crowd as it did to Mary and Martha, but they still shared in the sisters' grief. Comforting and consoling the grieving were an essential part of the Jewish religion. More essential than any good work. But you know, folks, we don't need a written law to tell us that we are to grieve with others. We don't need the Talmud to tell us that we are to grieve with others. And it should never be done out of duty or obligation. We should be there. We should be real. We should be... We should be quiet sometimes, and we should be supportive. Just being there with our family. The church should naturally be supportive. We need to get over the awkwardness of it. We need to be able to, to empathize with those around us. Weep with those who weep, as Paul said. I want you to notice now John 12, in verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Why do you think Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha again? Why would he visit that home again? This may be a bit of a reach, but I think one of the reasons was so that he could check in on them. 
I mean, that was a traumatic experience. Even though you raised him from the dead, you'd never forget that day. Whether you were Lazarus or whether you were Mary or Martha, you'd never forget it. And it probably still would sting somewhat, don't you think? When you weep that much, when you, when you show that much emotion over the death of someone that close to you, I think Jesus, for one, checked in on them to see if they were okay. He made himself available, which is something we need to do as well. We're so busy. We have so many things going on in our lives. We can find any reason in the world to not hit the pause button. But at some point, we have to stop and we have to consider those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, and say, someone's weeping, someone's hurting. I need to be available to them. I need to be there for them. All of us just about have a smartphone nowadays. Get out that smartphone. When you see someone who is sick and in the hospital, just make a note of it where they're at in the hospital and stop by and visit them. On your smartphone, mark on the calendar the, the day of the deceased's birthday, maybe the day they died. Set yourself a reminder so that you can go back to the wife or the husband or the children that are left behind, and you can give them a call that day and say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. Or maybe on Christmas, you send them a card and say, hey, I'm here for you. I know it's got to be tough. In other words, let's be more proactive in weeping with those who weep and mourning with those who are mourning, being there for those who are hurting. Just because the funeral is over doesn't mean that the grieving has stopped. Make yourself available. Ask them, how are you? Do you need anything? What can I do for you? And understand that in those moments, they don't need a theologian. They don't need a life coach. They just need somebody to be there. You know, John's gospel, it was written to a Greek audience. And this snapshot of Jesus found in chapter 11 would have been quite staggering to a Jewish audience. Do you realize that? Do you realize that the Greeks believed that the primary characteristic of God was something they called apatheia, which means total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever? Now, you think about that. They argued that if we humans can feel sorrow or joy or gladness or even grief, then that means that somebody else can have an effect upon us. If a person can have an effect upon us, then it means that for that moment, that person has power over us. And nobody has power over God, so therefore God is distant, he is passionless, he doesn't feel emotion. But we know that God doesn't operate that way. You think about what John's gospel would have revealed to a Greek audience. They would have seen God in a very different light. Now all of a sudden they see that God is not passionless, that he is not without compassion, that he is standing there, that he is grieving with those who are grieving. The good news is that Jesus brought a word to us that is so beautiful, so profound. Not just the good news of the gospel, but of a God who cares. A God who cares about his people. A God who, who knows what it's like to go through torment and suffering. God who has experienced it on a profound level. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel somewhat encouraged by 
whatever grief I'm going through, that we don't have a Savior or God that is distant, but one that knows what we're dealing with. You know, I read the story about Douglas Moore, a 15-year-old from Creve Corps, Missouri, a place that I'm pretty familiar with. And Douglas Moore was, at 15, having some health struggles. He was tired a lot. He was having, uh, running a high fever between 103 and 105 degrees. And so finally his mom took him to the doctor and it was discovered that he had leukemia. And so the doctors were very blunt, very frank with, with Douglas about the disease, about the treatment. He said, you're going to do chemotherapy for three years. This chemotherapy is going to cause you to lose your hair. It's going to cause you to be bloated. It's going to take a toll on your body. It's not going to be fun. And after hearing the news, Douglas fell into a deep depression, as I think a lot of us would. And his aunt decided one day she wanted to do something simple for him, so she called up the local floral shop, and she had some flowers sent to his room with a balloon attached to it. He received those flowers, and he thought, okay, great. And he pulled out the card. He read it. It was from his aunt. You know, I love you, all those good things. It was nice, nice gesture. But he noticed in the arrangement of flowers, there's another card. And so he picked up that card, and he read it. And it was from the florist herself. And it said, Douglas, I am the one who took the order. My name is Laura, and I too had leukemia at seven years of age. I am now 22. I'll be praying for you. Signed, Laura. Well, that did so much to lift his spirits. Here's somebody who has been through it, who lived to tell about it. And it's funny how you can be in a hospital with all this high-tech and sophisticated equipment there to help you get well. You have all these doctors and nurses who have been trained to help you get well, and yet it was a little note from the florist who was earning minimum wage at the local floral shop who was able to lift his spirits and make him feel better. You just never know what it is that you can, that you can say in a card or, or what you can do by being available and being real that can help another person. As Christians, we should lead the way at this. We should be the best at this. We should at least be striving to be great at it. Let me remind you again of Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. There are times that we get together and we rejoice and we share in one another's achievements. But then there are times that we get together and we say, you know what? My brother or my sister is hurting and I need to be there for him. We basically said the same thing in about a hundred different ways over the last three or four weeks. But I hope that you don't miss the point. And the point is that if we are suffering here, if anyone here is in need, we need to be there for them. And we need to help them as much as it is within our capabilities. This is a great time in the life of this church, but it doesn't negate the fact that people are hurting. And we can't miss people. We can't let the grieving fall through the cracks. We have to be there for them to help them in any way that we can. Because it can seem like death is winning. It's not. There is hope. Let us help others find that hope. We can help you this morning if you're grieving, if you're hurting, if you need the prayers and support of this church family. That is what we're here for. 
and we're ready to help you. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe that's where your grief is this morning. Let us help you with that as well. Don's going to sing a song. If you had need, come now as we stand and as we sing. Hearts are lonely and drear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary.